Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it been as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. It's the word of the Lord. A couple weeks ago, there was a big art show in London, and there was an auction uh, this was one of those uh, auctions where uh, kind of the elites, the cultural elites of society show up. This is art that's very expensive. And there was art uh, that was uh, donated by uh, an artist named Banksy. Uh, this is the balloon girl. Some of you are familiar with this, uh, this famous painting. Banksy is kind of a, a, a renaissance man. He's kind of this mysterious artist. Um, no one really knows his true identity. He got his start as a street artist doing sketches uh, in Bristol, England. Um, he's somewhat controversial. Um, he's a little bit of a, um, an, uh, an, I don't even know how to, an, an, anar- an ar- anarchist, uh, likes chaos. Everything that you'd want in like a really good artist. Um, and and his, his work has become uh, famous uh, really throughout the world. Um, kind of a guerrilla art that he does. And uh, this painting uh, was actually done um, on the side of a wall, and it was put into a canvas, and it was sold. During the auction, it was sold for probably three times of what they were expecting. Uh, it went for three million, or not three million, went for uh, one million pounds, which I think was about 1.4 million U.S. dollars uh, for this, this, this famous painting. As uh, the transaction was made, an alarm went off uh, in the room where, where the auction was taking place. And as the alarm went off, all of a sudden, the painting started to slip through the frame, and it turned out that the frame was actually a shredder. So the moment after it's purchased, an alarm goes off, and there's some sort of remote device in the frame that shreds the artwork. This is Banksy's greatest prank. It happened about two weeks ago. Fascinating, right? Uh, A a $1.4 million art piece shredded, just shredded. Uh, so, of course, there was this whole, like, everyone's in shock and awe. Some people are laughing. No one really knows what to do. And then they realize that this is really happening, and this is the actual original piece, and it's been destroyed. You have all of these great decision makers, these wealthy cultural elites, all of a sudden saying, what in the world do we do about this? Do we give the money back? Um, is this a worthless piece of art? It, it was this shock where nobody knew what to do. Uh, Banksy is probably dying laughing somewhere. It's a terrible prank, a terrible prank. Um, but it, it, had, it had sent a shockwave throughout the art world that Banksy got him. And, uh, 
and it, I, I heard about it through a number of ways through social media, read a couple articles online, just in shock that this kind of stuff can still happen, that someone can still get away with this. The person that bought the painting was shocked, furious, didn't know what to do, and finally came to this realization that even though it's this shredded piece of art that's hanging out of a frame, it's still art. And what was a $1.4 million piece of art now is world famous. So she said she's going to keep it because this is part of history. This actually made this thing more valuable. It's not just a, a canvas in a frame. There's something more here. And I was reading through this story and kind of like how everything happened. And these kind of things don't happen very often. This is like what you read about in like Italy in like the 1700s or something, 1600s. It's like this is really happening. And I was thinking about kind of this series that we were setting, Colossians. And something about the story resonated with me because when the early church starts in the first century, after Jesus dies on the cross, is crucified, conquers death, and is resurrected, he ascends into heaven. And it was like the ultimate moment of, well, now what? What do we do with this? Where do we go from here? And these followers of Jesus were in shock. They were trying to process everything that happened. And there's something about Jesus' death on the cross, the destruction of, of Jesus, which all of a sudden made his life so much more valuable. His death and destruction conquers death and destruction for all of us. And as the disciples were processing what had happened, this God's masterpiece, the Son of God who had come into this earth, who is destroyed, and then put back together, they start to understand this idea of resurrection and new creation. And it sends shockwaves throughout the world. But what do they do with that? As this message of what happened in Jesus on the cross started to spread, Jesus tells his disciples to wait, that the Holy Spirit's going to come to guide them, to empower them. And they're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria throughout the ends of the earth with this message of what happened when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. So the, the message goes out throughout the Mediterranean world, and they start to form these groups called churches, where they start to talk about what had happened with this destruction and resurrection of Jesus and what that meant for the world. As these groups start to, to go out, they start to live the way of Jesus in community. They start to understand that their life isn't just this temporary world, but there's something in touch with eternity in heaven that is invading earth now, getting glimpses of what God's kingdom is like, even though it's his future destination. And there was this man named Paul, and Paul uh, converts to becoming a follower of Jesus. And he's kind of moving throughout the world, helping form these groups of people called churches. Maybe they would start with 10 or 20 people meeting in a home, taking communion together and praying. Some of those groups would grow to 200, some would grow to thousands. But Paul's trying to direct these people in the way of life. This is what it means to be a community of Jesus followers. And he starts to write these letters because, you know, he can't just hop on, uh, hop on the internet and shoot emails. He can't, you know... Uh, have video, video calls with his iPhone. He has to write letters. This is this mode of communication. And some of these letters that he writes 
are so authoritative and influential and life-giving that these communities that were meeting in these towns started to think, these must be inspired by God. These, these letters, there's, there's something about them that speak to us in this moment, in this cultural moment that we're in now, but there's this truth of this letter that is for all people at all time. And these letters, they, they gathered them together into what we now have as the New Testament. And they would share them together. They would pass them back and forth. And we want to start looking at one of those letters today. The letter is called Colossians. It's to the church in Colossae. This is the introduction that I just read. A couple months ago, we studied a letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. These are the words of Paul as he's trying to help these followers of Jesus figure out what is next. And so we're reading a letter, we're reading someone's mail, but we're reading these words that are divinely inspired by God. And this is the letter to Colossae. What's interesting about this letter is that a lot of the places that these churches are starting, Ephesus, Rome, Corinth, or these major cities, well, Colossae wasn't. It used to be, but by the time of Paul, it was really kind of an insignificant uh, town in the middle of, of Turkey. But something happens in this town and in this church that gets Paul's attention. And so he feels he has to write. And as we read these words, here's my hope, that the words that Paul writes to this first century church that's trying to figure out what do we do next, how do we build life together, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus, these words would meet us here in Phoenix, Arizona, with the same kind of influence and authority to shape us to be the kind of people God wants us to be. So read the introduction, then Paul goes on to say this. For this reason, after this grand introduction, for this reason, verse 9, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, and we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may be, have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son he loves, in whom we have the redemption, have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Paul says, as he's heard about this church, he hasn't stopped praying for them. He hasn't stopped praying for them since the first time that he's heard about them. And he prays for a few things here. The first is that he prays for knowledge in verse 9. His prayer for the church, and I believe our church too, is for knowledge. Knowledge of God's will and knowledge of his wisdom to navigate this life. Do we know the mind of God? Do we know what God is up to in this world? Are we aware of what he's up to and what he has for us? Paul prays for the church to understand that. That matters. Last night I had opportunity to meet with my, my daughter and my niece. They're both being baptized today. And we went to Starbucks and uh, got uh, vanilla frappuccinos, no caffeine. Um, they got a cake pop. It's one of those things I couldn't say no to, so... Uh, we were having this conversation about baptism and asking, you know, what is it to you? And went through the scripture and 
Um, one of the things my niece said was so interesting. We were talking about how, how baptism is this declaration that I'm following Jesus. And she said, but I remember one time you said, that doesn't mean life's going to be easy. Like we make this decision and then we get baptized and we let everyone know. But then I remember that life is going to have a lot of ups and downs after that. And I was like, I can't remember when I said that, but you were listening. That's great. <laughs> Why is it that Paul is praying that we would have the knowledge of God? When we enter into this story, into this relationship with Jesus, when we believe that the work of God on the cross saves us from our own sin and brokenness, we still have to live life here and now. When we have a, a knowledge of God, we navigate life in a way that is in line with the heart of God. There's this work that God does for us, but then there's this work that God is doing in us and through us in this world. Just like Emma said, Life doesn't mean it's going to be all of a sudden easy, but it means that God is with us in the midst of navigating the challenges of life. And Paul prays this for the church, and this is my prayer for us too, that we would have a knowledge of God's will and his wisdom in this life here and now. Second thing that he prays for. He prays for knowledge, and then he prays, it's a prayer for a worthy life. A worthy life, he's praying to the church in Colossae, that you would live a life worthy of what God has called you to. Praise for a worthy life. First thing, and then he kind of defines, this is what a worthy life means. First thing is that a worthy life means growth. A worthy life means growth. Verse 10. That you would be bearing much fruit and growing in your understanding of God. Uh, my daughter, Sophia, just had a birthday two weeks ago. And one of the things that I like about Facebook, don't like everything, uh, is that you get to go back on the timeline and see dates and events that have happened in the past. And so we always post about Sophia's birthday so we could go back and look at like her first birthday and her fourth birthday and her eighth birthday. And it's, you forget, like, oh my goodness, she, is, she used to be so tiny. What happened? She's growing up. You see progress. You see growth. These glimpses of your child growing, you can tangibly see it. I think the same thing is important for us spiritually. Every year, we should be growing closer to God. We should be growing closer to Christ, more into the kind of person he's designed us to be. Paul's prayer for that church is that you would grow to produce good fruit, that you would grow in your relationship. And that is my prayer for us too, that we would grow, that we would grow spiritually. I think back of, of my own life and reflecting even over the journey of, of the four years that we've been a part of this church together, different ways that God surprised me. He's grown my faith immensely. The different ways that God has worked in people's life. He's reminded me of, of his faithfulness and goodness. Strengthen my faith through you, through our friendship and community together. The life that's worthy of living is a life that is constantly growing, that God is growing us spiritually. A worthy life also means empowerment. So a worthy life means growth. A worthy life also means empowerment. Verse 11 says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might 
so that you may have great endurance and patience. A worthy life means powered by God's spirit with God's glorious might so that we may have endurance, patience, and joy. We talked about the letter to Ephesus a couple months ago. One of the things Paul kept telling the church is that you are resurrection people. The God who is the creator of the universe is with you. The God who is rich in mercy and grace and love is with you. Live up to be those kind of people. The resurrection people. He's constantly reminding them that he who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we might ask or imagine is with you. We're a called people. We're a people that have power because God is with us. We do amazing things with him when we turn to him, when we depend on him. And the ordinary, our ordinary acts of love and obedience become extraordinary. We have the power of God with us. And Paul wants that church to know it. The life that is worthy is a life that embraces the power of God, which looks different than the power of this world, but what fills us with the life of heaven. And then finally, the worthy life. A worthy life means gratitude. It says that he is grateful. Grateful. The worthy life is grateful for an inheritance, what we believe about our future. Meeting with the Buckmaster family this week who just lost their dad. There's hope. Hope that Ed, who's had cancer for three and a half years, is restored, that he's healed that he's made whole. We have hope because of our inheritance. It's not often that we think about the afterlife. Sometimes we don't like to think it. We like to pretend maybe uh, that it's some, some other thing. And then death has a way of reminding us that life here is so short and temporary. But there's this inheritance, and for that we're grateful. Because whatever we experience in this life, we have this God that we will meet with someday who makes things right. We're grateful for this kingdom that we're a part of, this calling, that our lives are used here for the common good. Our lives have been loaded with purpose and meaning. Every act, everything that we do is an act of worship that brings glory to God and makes life better for those around us. And for forgiveness of sins. Grateful for all the ways that I've messed up and been broken, that God forgives me, that my spouse forgives me, my friends forgive me. I have a friend who's a pastor, and always I love this phrase he says, all of life is grace. Are we grateful for the life that we navigate? Prayer for a worthy life, a life that means growth. Worthy life means growth, empowerment, and gratitude. My hope and my prayer for us as a church is that. The same as Paul, is that we would be a place of growth, empowerment, and gratitude in everything that we do. Then Paul ends this first chapter of this letter. He ends with this fascinating, almost poetic part of his letter. Some say that this is an old hymn, that this is like one of the first creeds of the church. It's a statement, it's a theological statement about who Jesus is. And he says this, the Son, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness to dwell in him, in Christ. And through him, to reconcile him to himself all things, whether things of earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul transitions from praying for the church to reminding them of who Christ is. For the purpose of this whole Colossians letter was having them to fix their eyes on Jesus. This is what this is all about. This is what we center our lives on, the Son of God, the image of the invisible God, his fullness, God's fullness dwells in Christ. We know who God is because of Jesus. Uh, Curtis Mitchell just went to Europe for two weeks because he's awesome. <laughs> and uh, while he was there, he got to see a lot of old cathedrals, a lot of uh, uh, his historical art pieces, was in Italy, went up to Lake Como, went up to Germany, was there for Oktoberfest, super fun trip. Uh, and I was telling him about how I was, wanted to talk about another piece of art to end this sermon. Started the sermon with an art piece, wanted to end with it, and was telling him about, uh, he's running slides right now, how this masterpiece of Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper, was going to talk about it. And Curtis goes, oh yeah, I saw that a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, I got a photo of it. And he goes, yeah, I got a photo of the real thing. And I was like, you think I could use your photo for this? Uh, this is actually The Last Supper painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, I thought it was really small. That, that's the Mona Lisa. That's the small one, right? Uh, Curtis was telling me that this, this mural is like the size of this back wall between the doors. It's just this massive, massive painting. You can see someone's head on it, or down here, human. So it's like, it, it's, a, it's a massive painting. Uh, when Leonardo da Vinci painted this, it took him three years. He dedicated three years of his life to this, to this painting. Um, Four years of the church has felt like an eternity for me. I, I mean, three years of painting, in a good way, but, but three years, to give your life to something for three years to paint um, is, uh, is crazy. And, and as he was getting ready to finish this painting, he pulled aside one of his friends who was an artist, and he kind of unveiled it for him. And he really trusted his uh, friend's opinion and, and knew that he would be uh, very critical in a constructive way. And he shows him this painting. And his friend looks at the painting, and he says, this is great. And he looks at Jesus in the painting, and then he notices that in Jesus' hand is a cup. And he says, that's a beautiful cup that Jesus is holding. Oh, great job. That looks, I mean, it looks almost real. What a beautiful cup. And Leonardo da Vinci was disappointed. And right then and there, he started to, erase the cup and paint over it. And his friend's like, wait, wait, what are you doing? That's like my favorite part of the picture. And Leonardo da Vinci says, that was not my intent, was to, to make something like that your favorite part of the picture. And in fact, Jesus is supposed to be your favorite part of the picture. And he has this, he says, nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. And he removes this cup that 
that Jesus is holding. And now there's this Jesus whose hands are open in this painting, open to receive, to give, to bless. Takes out this cup. Says there should be nothing that distracts us from Christ in this photo. And I heard a commentator talking about this Colossians, the supremacy of Christ, these words that Paul uses to describe Jesus. And he says this is what Paul was doing. He wanted the church to not have anything to distract them from who Christ is. All the different things that we add to it, to church, all the different things we add to religion, it's about Jesus in a relationship with him. At Desert City, we use this language of simple and sacred. We don't want to add anything to it, to what church is. We want to keep things simple. This is about Jesus. This is about a relationship with him and how that affects all of our other relationships. And we believe that when we keep it simple, something sacred happens. This community can act like no other community that we interact with all week long. Because there's something simple here, and there's something sacred about it. Nothing distracts us from Christ. When it comes to how do we build a life, here's kind of my, my big idea for the day. When it comes to Paul's prayer for the church, when it comes to him returning people to the image of the invisible God, which is Jesus, we start to build our life through Christ-centered prayer. When we pray and Christ is our focus, we start to build the life that he wants, a life worthy of him, a life full of growth and good fruit, a life full of empowerment, the resurrection people, a life full of gratitude. It all starts through Christ-centered prayer. Tim's going to come back up, and we're going to spend some time in prayer. Today, we don't have communion, uh, but we want to just spend some time reflecting, some time being grateful. And Tim's going to lead us in an old hymn uh, that many of you know. And as we sing this hymn, here's my hope today, that the prayer of Paul would resonate in your hearts that you would start to build your life centered on who Christ is. And from that, you would produce a great fruit because God is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day, this celebration for us as a church community, Lord. You've been so faithful. You've been so good. You have started so many new friendships here, developed a community, a foundation, sacred roots here in Desert Ridge a community that loves really well, a community that keeps things simple and acknowledges that something sacred happens. Lord, we are grateful. And we know that you're just getting started with us. That someday we'll look back at these first four years and be reminded of just the good things that you've done the lives that you've changed, the grace that you've shown. Today, Lord, we're thankful. We center our lives on you. Amen.